Welcome to another 4 Minutes of Threads. Before we start, I have some uh, Threads-related news. I'm going to Sheffield in September to visit all the Threads filming locations. This is thanks to my father-in-law, who has given us some money so that we can have our Sheffield trip, as he knows that all my savings have recently been diverted to pay for my dentistry. So I'll be there for four nights with my husband and my dog, and we're going to do a lot of filming in the city and hopefully get some good YouTube videos and podcasts out of that for you. I'm also inviting my podcast patrons to meet me at the city's Nottingham House pub. Threads buffs will know that that's the pub visited by Jimmy and Ruth in the film. My plan is to hopefully meet up with Atomic Hobo patrons in the pub, and ideally what I'd like to do is to record a podcast episode from the pub, speaking to patrons about Threads, Uh, their memory of first seeing it, uh, what the film means to them. So if you are a patron of Atomic Hobo, check your emails or go to my Patreon site where I've given more details and I've uploaded a poll to try and find the best day which would suit um, the hobos who are able to come to Sheffield. And if you want to become a patron of Atomic Hobo, please head to www.patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Okay, so let's jump into threads. We are still in the hospital scene, unfortunately. The dreaded, stinking, filthy hospital, where the stairs are running with blood and the corridors echoing with screams. The narrator at the end of our last segment reminded us that a doctor post-nuclear war is almost useless. Without his tools and medicine and sterilised environments, he is little better equipped than the nearest survivor. Nonetheless, hundreds and hundreds of people have flocked to the hospital because, well, it would be a natural reaction, wouldn't it? Your heart's injured, sick, where else do you go? This is something I don't think British post-war planning post-nuclear war planning, had accounted for. As we discussed in the last episode, plans for the post-nuclear NHS intended to keep people out of hospital. They wanted survivors to practice first aid and home nursing and care for their own friends, family and neighbours. In a desperate circumstance, you might stumble along to your local first aid post. And then they would assess you, try and help you, and perhaps, if you needed it, they would allow you to be treated at a casualty collecting centre. And if you needed better help than they could give, and only very few would make it along that strict triage chain, you would be referred on to the hospital. But as we see in threads, if crowds start massing at the hospital, forcing their way past the doors and into the corridors, How on earth do you keep them out? Armed guards in a hospital? It's a a horrible thought, but if other key points were to be guarded by soldiers or armed police, why not hospitals also? Of course, we think of hospitals as places of care, but after a nuclear war, maybe the authorities would no longer view it as a place of care and treatment and kindness and recuperation, but more as something akin to a garage. Get the broken cars in, try and fix them, scrap the ones that you can't, 
but get them back out on the road as soon as you can. We need workers. We need them up and running. If the chief principle of being a doctor currently is uh, first do no harm, that might become warped into something like uh, first maintain a productive workforce for the state. In the hospital, Ruth wanders through the crowded corridors and she's constantly looking left and right and over her shoulder. She's constantly searching for Jimmy amongst all the bruised, battered and burned survivors. As she walks through the corridors, we hear a child crying, I don't like it, I don't like it. And that's another horrible reminder that surgery and treatment are being conducted here in barbaric conditions and without anaesthetic. Another point to note is that many of the people we see slumped and silent in the corridors, some of them seem to have been given treatment already. Many of them have bandages on. So either these people have received... uh, rudimentary treatment at home from desperate family consulting a first aid manual or they've been given quick treatment at the hospital and yet they stay slumped in the corridor maybe because there's nowhere else to go or maybe they're reluctant to leave as there's a feeling of relative safety being in the hospital also seeing so many physical injuries being wrapped up in bandages is a reminder of the the deep, deep psychological injuries everyone will have suffered. And how do you ever begin to tackle that? The trauma, the the death of hope, the barbarism people will have witnessed. Even if every survivor was suddenly scooped out of that stinking hospital and whisked away to safety and given hot baths, feather beds, roast dinners, the, the miraculous return of their family... There must still be deep, invisible wounds to the psyche which will never be healed. I know that when I had what we might unfashionably call a nervous breakdown back in 2009, I've still never fully recovered from it. Even though everything's better now, I still know that I'll never be back to the way I was. It's like having a bad leg break and forever after walking with a slight limp, even though it's healed. Still, the slight limp. That's how I think of it. My mind (laughs) has a limp. Anyway, Ruth finds a space amongst the crowd and she burrows in against the wall. She looks stricken. She looks horrified. And I ask again, why does she go on? I would lie down and give up. But the answer is, well, she's clinging still to the hope that Jimmy is alive, but also... We can hear the child crying in the background. And I suppose that's why she goes on. Because she has a baby coming. She has something, I suppose, which is tethering her to life, whether she wants to be there or not. We leave the hospital, thank God, and switch to the council bunker beneath the town hall, where conditions are deteriorating horribly. Water is dripping through the ceiling and of course we know it will be filthy water laced with 
fallouts and decay. We see it collecting in a pot or a desk and it's hideously brown and murky. Although we see a cigarette butt floating in the water. So the council staff aren't doing themselves any favours by smoking, but of course it was the 80s and attitudes to smoking were different. And maybe the thinking is, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. The air's already tainted, so if you are a smoker, then why not indulge? In the bunker, everyone is coughing. There's a constant soundtrack of coughs and splutters in the background. The people look filthy, exhausted, worn out. The camera moves over the desks and we see litter and debris everywhere. A dented can of Vimto, an empty orange juice carton, crumpled papers and, as a sign of the staff's hopelessness and isolation, a phone with its receiver off the hook. That thing will never ring again. It will lie there in the dust for eternity. That reminds me of um, some graffiti scrawled on the walls of the Burlington Bunker in Wiltshire. When Peter Hennessy, the great Cold War historian, visited, he saw some graffiti written on the wall down there saying, Stuck here for eternity. Because in this council bunker, we are now talking about eternity. Because even when a team finally breaks through the rubble to reach them and finds them all suffocated... The rescue team are not going to haul out the corpses, uh, take them above ground and give them a decent burial. Listeners to this podcast will know about the problems of burying corpses after a nuclear war, so no, our council staff are going to be left in their dusty tomb. They are indeed stuck here for eternity. And I assume that hard plastic phone will endure longer than their bodies will. It will be sitting there, perky and alert on the desk, waiting for rings that will never come. As the camera focuses on one group who are talking about the food supply, we can see behind them one of their colleagues in the background who is slumped over his desk. Is he napping? Is he exhausted? Or is he dead? Could be any of those. I think maybe he is dead because, after all... Everyone else that we see in this scene is in a state of sheer exhaustion, but they are still working, they are fighting through it. So why would this guy be allowed to nap at his desk when everyone else is hard at work? So the group who are talking are Mr Sutton, the council leader, the doctor and the food officer. Now there's a lot of talk here, plus a conversation going on across the room, So I turn to my thread script to make sure that I'm picking up every word. Off camera, someone is asking about the broiler fowls that have died, saying, can't we use them? That of course shows how desperate things are. They're talking about using dead chickens as a food source. Of course, all the animals who were being housed and reared in industrial farming settings, well, the power supply is obviously gone. So if you imagine those huge barns which contain thousands of chickens, for example, I'm sorry if that upsets anyone, well, these huge places will have ceased to function. And so we can assume that all the chickens inside will have died. So someone is asking, what can we do? Can we use the broiler fowls who have died? What exactly is a broiler fowl? I had to look it up. Um, According to Wikipedia, it's any chicken who is being reared for its meat. 
So as I just mentioned, we can assume that the heating and lighting and feeding for these chickens will have stopped and that they will have perished. But their carcasses might still be edible. And indeed, there was specific civil defence advice for farmers about how to protect their animals and, after the attack, how they could know whether the animals would be safe to eat. Here's what the advice had to say about eating chickens after nuclear war. Question. Would poultry, pigs and sheep be affected by fallout to the same extent as cattle? Answer. Approximately, yes. Again, although they might get radiation sickness, their flesh would be fit to eat. This is because the radioactive material, which is retained in an animal's body, goes into bones and to its internal organs, rather than to the flesh. If you killed any livestock for your family's use, you should not use the bones or offal for food. So, assuming that these uh, broiler fowl were undercover when the attack happened, they would be safe to eat in terms of fallout. But the fact that they have been dead for days and obviously haven't been kept in clean and refrigerated conditions, that opens up a whole range of other hygiene problems about eating their flesh. But obviously people are starving and they are becoming desperate. And so we are talking about eating broiler fowl which have been lying dead in a post-nuclear landscape for a couple of weeks now. So in the bunker, the conversation that's going on is about uh, food and the lack of food. And the only solution to the terrible lack of food is to cut the surviving population's rations. The doctor suggests that we cut it back further to a calorie intake of 500 calories per day. The food officer sitting across the table is rightly appalled at this. But then Clive, the council leader, interrupts to deliver the, the horrible reality of the situation. Here's a clip. We'll have to cut their rations. I've worked it out there. 1,000 calories for manual workers and 500 for the rest. 500? 500? That wouldn't keep a flea alive. Should we be bothering to keep anybody alive if they can't work? A lot of people are going to die anyway. Back to survival of the fittest, I suppose. So yes, that's what it all comes back to again and again and again. Who deserves food? And what will that 500 calories per day look like? Here's the doctor describing what that would look like on a plate. What is that in terms of food, then, 500 calories? <coughs> I don't know. A few slices of bread, some soup, a lamb chop, a treacle tart, a few pints of beer. <laughs> Bastards! Yes, that was the doctor screaming in frustration. He clenches his fist and he looks up. He's cursing. Well, who? Who is he cursing? The, the politicians? The, the generals? Fate? God? Humanity itself? And throughout this whole exchange, even though the, there is yelling and swearing going on, the, the colleague in the background, he's still slumped 
and silent and still at his desk. I think by now that yes, he must be dead. And the fact that no one cares or no one has noticed, well, that tells us that they are dying all over the bunker, dying at their post. Elsewhere in the bunker, staff are arguing. Everyone is losing their tempers. Everyone is on the absolute verge of breaking down. Two staff in particular are arguing, and the script tells me this is the chief superintendent and the accommodation officer. The chief is looking for an empty factory or somewhere where he can round up and secure captured criminals. But the accommodation officer is in total despair. He is frantic, almost in tears it seems. And he shouts that he has thousands of homeless people above ground. They need space too. Here's a clip. Look, you must have an empty factory somewhere. No, you look! I've got thousands of homeless bloody people up there walking around and I've got enough on with them without being worried about bloody criminals. Well, you're going to have to find somewhere to put them, aren't you? Well, I don't know. Look, shoot the buggers, I don't care! So, shoot them. That's his desperate and furious suggestion. And maybe there's a grain of truth in that. We have talked previously on this podcast about crime and punishment after nuclear war and how the the current punishments that we have in society, jail sentences or fines, for example, they would be quite worthless after nuclear war. You might even say that a jail sentence would be desirable after nuclear war because it would mean they would be given shelter and food. So how do you punish or deter crime? after a nuclear attack. You'd have to be creative and look at other punishments. Forced labour, denial of food rations perhaps. Or, yes, the ultimate punishment, bringing back hanging or shooting people. Capital punishment. But then, if you want to really prod that subject, would the authorities be willing to execute all of the criminals? Wouldn't some criminals be valuable? Because what type of personality and character will be of more value to the authorities after nuclear war? Will it be a nice, decent, sweet person who has survived through luck, good fortune? Or will it be a tough, hardened, ruthless criminal sort? Wouldn't a a mob of tough criminals be of greater use in rebuilding society than a mob of nice aunties? Maybe if you're hard and desperate and tough enough to commit a crime in the first place, then that gives you a bit of a head start in the race to survive. Survival of the fittest, as the doctor said. It's not going to be survival of the nicest or kindest or most decent. We leave the filthy bunker and we are told it is now Friday, June 17th, which is 22 days after the attack. Above ground we see rats nibbling on corpses and some text on the screen tells us of the likely epidemics which will now sweep the remains of Britain. Cholera, dysentery, typhoid. Things we might associate with the Victorian era. Now they come charging back and will nose out sweep away many of the survivors. The scene shifts to Ruth's house and we see three looters emerge from the basement and they are coughing and heaving. 
They're complaining about the smell. And we assume that's the smell from the rotting corpses of Ruth's mum, dad and gran. But as the looters flee in the ruined streets with their bags of tins, they are shot at and apprehended by soldiers. They protest that they are not looting, they're simply searching empty houses. And one of them adds, what choice have we got? And it's true, we can understand surely that they've been driven to this, driven to it by starvation. After all, didn't we just see the doctor down in the bunker talk about cutting rations to 500 calories a day? How can we expect people to survive on that when, yes, there are ruined, empty houses with tins of food just sitting there on the shelves? Again, we see human nature butting up against post-nuclear rules. The rules say that food must be strictly controlled by the authorities and will be rationed by them. But human nature will surely drive starving people to steal and to take more. I often get the impression, uh, reading civil defence planning documents, that the authorities are scared to honestly confront things like how stark, blunt and terrifying human nature is. Or maybe they realise if we do confront that, then all of our rules and directives will be useless. Because poultry little rules typed out on home office paper can never account for it, can never equal things like terror, desperation and starvation. That's the end of our four minutes. Um, If you want more nuclear podcasts, I uploaded a new bonus episode for patrons at the weekend. It's about experiments in shelter living and includes a report from one in America from the 60s which got a bit scary. Here's a clip telling us about one shelter inhabitant, Mr Black, whose mental health seemed to suffer under the strange shelter conditions they were living in. He began thinking that he actually had radiation sickness and he started wandering about the shelter with a screwdriver. Here's a clip. Things worsened so that we're told that Mr Black did not sleep for his first three days in the shelter and on the fourth day was close to physical collapse. And when a mocked-up radio broadcast in the shelter described the symptoms of radiation sickness, Mr Black seemed convinced that he had it and he ran to the emergency phone to report his symptoms. But yet it gets even worse now. Quote, Black started to keep a large screwdriver hidden in his bunk and Mr Knight, a 33-year-old nuclear power technician, started to carry a hammer in his pocket as a potential countermeasure. Mr Knight also went to the emergency phone and sought advice on how to deal with a mentally ill person and he subsequently alerted some other fit young men in the shelter in case they had to jump in and restrain Mr Black. So that episode and uh, 12 others are available now on my Patreon site. So if you want to become a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, I'm inviting podcast patrons to meet in Sheffield in September and hopefully we can record an episode together in Ruth and Jimmy's pub. And before I go, let me thank my newest patrons and those who have kindly increased their monthly donation. Thank you Pippin, Randy Delaney, 
Dale Kilner, Daniel Medcalf, Ben Taylor, Sharon Grierson and Jamie Ty Tate. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain or at my website juliemcdowell.com and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.